Several years ago, there was an article about a couple of F-16 Air Force Strike Eagles. That's America's twice supersonic speed of sound fighter bomber, fighter jet. And they were flying on a routine mission in thick cloud cover when they ran into an embedded thunderstorm. And they didn't really worry about it because these aircraft have wings that are so powerful that they're far more powerful than a light plane, a light twin, where a light aircraft that would have flown into what they blundered into would have demolished the aircraft. Because you get into these huge winds, updrafts and downdrafts, and as a pilot, I knew to, in, to absolutely avoid any kind of a big thunderstorm, especially some of those with tops up above 40,000 feet. Because believe it or not, inside some of those thunderstorms, there are balls of hail as big as a softball oftentimes, and sometimes even larger. And they don't just fall to the ground. Sometimes they actually go up, and believe it or not, pilots are reported seeing them coming out the top, just like a popcorn machine on some of these gigantic big thunderstorms. Well, one thing you understand when you're a pilot is that you always maintain a critical attitude. The attitude meaning that you keep the aircraft pointed the direction you want to go and you don't have a critical nose up or nose down, but you have exactly the attitude with the wings level that you want to fly. So in rough or turbulent weather, you think attitude first and airspeed second. Well, they were going along, and they did exactly that. They were inside of each other with a loose formation, and they kept exactly the same attitude, but the winds were just buffeting them all over the place. And even though they kept the same attitude, they came out of that thunderstorm separated by about 25 miles and quite a few thousand feet. So the wind did that to the aircraft. The analogy I'm drawing is that when turbulence strikes, when the rough going hits, when the storms assail you, think attitude. It will always get you through more quickly than practically anything else. I want to turn to an old favorite scripture everybody knows practically by heart. People quote it to each other all the time. It's over in Matthew 7 and verse 1. While you're turning there, I want to tell you about some of the guys that I know in a neighborhood. I won't divulge any personalities, but Recently, a young black Thai mixture, known as, known as Tiger Woods, uh, wrote a little bit of sports history because he had won practically every major championship there is, and they call it the Grand Slam. He had won the PGA, he'd won the American Open, and now he won the British Open by a margin that set a new record. He is apparently a fine young man. I've seen the movie about his life. He was a little bitty boy. His dad caught him, taught him golf and everything. And I was talking to one fellow out in Emerald Bay recently. I live in a retirement community, as you know, and a lot of people are golfers out there. Well, I just don't like him. I said, well, why don't you like him? Well, I just don't like him. He said this or that, or he did that. You know, some people, they don't want to tell you I don't like him because he's black. I resent it because he's black and I'm white and the other guys on the tour are white and a white man ought to be ahead. We can't let these blacks take over all the sports, what they're really thinking, you know. But then I began to realize all the things that I hear from time to time out there, and it's sort of like this game called, Oh, Ain't It Awful. And they will talk about real estate, and they will talk about the greens, and they'll talk about the groundskeeper, and they'll talk about the monthly dues, and they'll talk about everything. One fellow I know is very temperamental, feels very sorry for himself, and continually when he misses a putt, he will just cuss, and literally cuss, the greens. These blankety-blank, unprintable greens. And you get tired of it after a while because you hear all of these various attitudes coming out of people's mouths. I decided, even though we all know what the word attitude means, to look it up and get all the various meanings and shadings because of what I wanted to say today, Attitude, the first meaning of the dictionary is, quote, a way of thinking, acting, or feeling. That is a quotation that they give you an example. As the work became easier, his attitude towards school changed from dislike to great enthusiasm. So he had a positive instead of what we call a negative attitude. Second definition, a position of the body appropriate to a person's action, purpose, emotion, or mental state a position of the body. He assumed the attitude of a boxer ready to fight. 
that can be used that way. When Ambassador College was first started and I was just out of the Navy, there was a young fellow that came from St. Louis and we would have the forums and he never deigned to sit down with the rest of us because sitting down would have cost him something. He would have said by sitting down, I'm one of you. So he came into the foyer and it was a little reception area there, the little library room, and he just stood against the door jam, kind of like this, you know, leaning against it, his look on his face and looking around. Body language. Everybody knew exactly what he's saying. I'm not one of you. I'm not sure about all this. I'm not sure I like being here. I don't like what I'm hearing. I'm above it all. Nuts to you guys. You know, you got the message loud and clear by his body language, the attitude of his body that he assumed. You've all dealt with that, and some of us have even done it to one another from time to time. Third, meaning the inclination of an aircraft, as I told you, or another object in flight determined by the relations between its axes and some reference line or plane. And usually that's the horizon. What kind of an attitude can keep us out of God's kingdom? And what kind of an attitude should we have in order to enter God's kingdom? What was Christ's attitude given certain very tribulous or, or troublous times, tribulation and problems and things that came to him, especially the most extreme problem that he ever suffered, which was his brutal beating, his torture, and his death by crucifixion. You don't play, oh, ain't it awful, and get into God's kingdom, but a lot of people think they can. I've said for many, many years that most people can read these things and they look at them as platitudes. They believe them in their minds and hearts. But when it comes right down, as they say, push comes to shove, they don't live by them. They don't practice them. They don't do them. Matthew 7, 1, we all know what it says, judge not that you be not judged. Well, we also understand that really means condemn not because the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, that they should judge, meaning discern. So it doesn't mean don't discern. You can understand the difference between good and evil, bad attitude and good attitude, bad posture and good posture. Anyone can. Some people carry this to an extreme, and they think you shouldn't come to any conclusion whatsoever about somebody else's facial expressions or what they say out of their mouth or their actions. No, that's nonsense. Of course, you can judge when someone's in a wrong spirit, but don't condemn them. You can see they're in a wrong spirit, but you don't condemn them. So it really should read, condemn not, that you be not condemned. You don't judge harshly, or judge falsely, or judge by the hearing of your ear, or the seeing of your eye. For with what judgment you judge, the kind of judgment, you shall be judged. That's a horrible sentence for some people if they would just think it through. You know what a solenoid valve is, or switch? Some people think of themselves as being spring-loaded to anger. I remember many, many years ago I was preaching out of 1 Corinthians 13. There happened to be seated up near the front someone that I knew was pretty prone to flying off the handle and very angry. And I knew that as I was preaching, and I was going along about love, and I came to the part, love is not easily provoked. And oh, did that get a response out of a few people in the audience. And one person turned to the person seated next to him and very loudly was grumbling and, and thinking, he's preaching against me. <laughs> I want to take issue with that. Uh, can I ever preach against you? Not if I use the Word of God, I cannot. It's impossible because the Word of God is for us. So if in a sermon, certain scriptures step on my toes and yours, that's good. That's exactly what we need. Jeremiah prayed, correct me, O Lord. And David said, correct me, but not in anger, lest you bring me to nothing. And he said, correct me, it'll be a kindness like oil dripping down over my head. But most of us do not pray for correction. And it's very, very tough to be a Christian when the storms the embedded thunderstorm, the violent winds, and the turbulent times come to us. It's easy sitting in church and thinking all these nice thoughts. So if we use that kind of judgment and we are spring-loaded to anger, we're spring-loaded to come up with a wrong conclusion based on what we think someone else has said or thought or done, and uh, we impute a motive to that individual. That's where it gets bad, is when we do that. 
We impute a motive. You did it because you are hateful and you don't like me, rather than you did it because you're carnal and you're unfeeling and unthinking. There's a difference. One is a deliberate motive that we have to hurt someone else, and the other is simply a manifestation of normal carnal reactions, where for a moment we slipped up, we weren't thinking of responding exactly as Christ would. So with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. Think about that. How do you judge? How do you react? What is your body language, your facial expression? What comes out of your mouth? What do you think when someone does you wrong? With what measure you meet, however you dish it out, it shall be measured to you again. And we know the old scripture, Why do you behold the little tiny mote, the little speck that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam, the big sliver or plank that is in your own eye? Or how would you say to your brother, let me pull that mote out of your eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye. And that's what hypocrisy is all about. So he says, thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam of your own eye, and then you shall see clearly to cast the mote out of your brother's eye. That is in the Sermon on the Mount. There is nothing more fundamental to the teachings of Christ and being a member of God's kingdom than Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I don't care how many years we've been in God's church, that applies to me as well. I do not always do that perfectly by any manner, shape, or, or means. I find myself falling short in that regard many times. And coming up with an opinion about people based upon their actions, it is absolutely erroneous. And I'll tell you an example. One time in San Diego, California, in about 1955, I was up there preaching, and I was a student at the time, and there was a man that had a look on his face that could kill. I thought the man hated me. I thought he wanted to slay me. I thought he wanted to get out a knife and cut my throat. So I thought, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And all through that sermon, I was disturbed. He bothered me. And I took a bunch of scriptures about attitude and all of this, and I just zeroed in. I looked right at him. I'm preaching away. I get over there afterward. I make a beeline to talk to him. One of the nicest guys I ever met. His face was just built backwards to a dolphin. <laughs> he just had... <laughs> He had a face with a built-in sneer. Now, have you ever seen people with a face with a built-in sneer? You know, I mean, uh, the guy had a built-in sneer. Dolphins have a built-in smile. They're a happy little little mammal, happy big mammal, a fish. But this guy had a built-in sneer. Oh, how wrong I was. I went over there, and he was the nicest guy to talk to. Well, I felt a lot better about it the next week. There was sitting there looking at his face. And I'm up there preaching away, and I'm happy that time. No problem at all. Sometimes you misinterpret. Over in Luke 17, verses 3 through 5, Christ said, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. We don't do that, do we? Because why don't we? Well, we're afraid that it'll be misunderstood. It will be misinterpreted. That he will react very violently. Uh, most people will not go in the spirit in which the Bible says we should, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, and go in a very humble way and lead up to it very gradually, confessing your own faults first and saying all these disclaimers. Now, don't take me wrong. I'm really sincere about this. I don't mean to upset you. However, something occurred that I would like to discuss with you, and I know that I'm, I'm thinking about it wrong, and it's probably going to be fine once we discuss it together. But there are ways to approach someone to get a yes answer and to get a soft answer. A soft response turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a very hard, a brittle one, of course, is going to get you a cat fight every time. So if your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. Rebuke doesn't mean cuss him out. Christ wouldn't say that to you. He wouldn't say call him names. He wouldn't say get angry, be in the wrong attitude, let your voice get angry, shake your finger in his, fa in his face. He wouldn't say that. And if he repent, forgive him. And that doesn't mean dissolve into a bucket of tears and flow under the door. Time and time again, I've seen people that require that of other people when they have a problem between them. And the only way they're really going to be satisfied is if the individual virtually comes apart, just breaks down and bawls and says, oh, I was so wrong. I just can't stand what I did. I'm so sorry. Can you ever forgive me? You won't get that response out of people most of the time. You probably will get a little partial response. Later on in private, those individuals might get on their knees and you need to think of that in a positive attitude and imagine that's probably what they're going to do. If you repent, forgive him. 
And if he trespass against thee seven times in the same day, that is so tough as to be virtually impossible for any human being, and that's the whole point. It is impossible for a carnal human being. It cannot be impossible for a converted human being, or Christ wouldn't have said it. But look at your patience here being tried. I mean, that's stretching it out like a pasta machine, isn't it? you got it so thin here, looks like a copper wire, for pity's sake. You've got no patience left. Somebody comes up and backs into your mailbox. Oh, boy, it's going to cost me $300. I can't find a bricklayer. Then they do it again, same day. And they do it again the same day. Now how tough does it get? The bricklayer is exhausted. Your pocketbook is exhausted. And they do it again the same day. You still forgive. You overlook it. Each time was a mistake. You don't worry about it. It's a formula for solving problems in a Christ-like manner. If he tre trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day, turn again to you saying, I'm sorry, I repent, I apologize. You shall forgive him. I've had people tell me in the past, well, forgiveness is no problem for me. I just don't want anything to do with you anymore. I'm, I'm wondering, where, where is that in here? Can you find that in here? Uh, it, the second time or the third time, you have nothing to do with this person anymore, right? Is that God's prescription here for getting rid of the problem? It says seven times. He's still able to come back the sixth time, the seventh time, and you're still a brother. And at this point, the apostle said exactly what you or I would say. Lord, increase our faith. Yeah. <laughs> oh, increase our faith, because how can we possibly achieve something like that? But it was Christ's formula for solving problems and staying in a Christ-like attitude, avoiding conflicts and divisions. An awful lot of people give lip service to that. I remember a time when one minister came to me, and he was so angry, he was about to leave the church. He was talking about a, another minister. And I asked him outright, well, have you gone to him with this problem? Well, no. You haven't? Well, why are you coming to me with it? You're supposed to say you go directly to him with it, then if he won't hear you, you come to me. And I'm sure we'll have some more chairs or some people need to come in. Now, Matthew 18, if you'll go to that, verses 15 through 18. This is Christ's formula for solving problems in the church between brothers and sisters. And it is not my idea. It is not somebody else's idea. It is the Word of God. It's what Jesus Christ of Nazareth says you must do. Matthew 18:15. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, and what is your attitude? Galatians 6:1. Those that are spiritual go to such an one of the spirit of meekness, lest thou should also be tempted. So you consider all of that. You go in love, and love is love, joy, peace. Love is long-suffering. Love is not easily provoked. Love believes all, all the best. It hopes for all the best. It's got all those qualities. You go, you get on your knees, you, you pray about it, you get in the absolute best attitude, straight and level, and then you go in that attitude. It doesn't say you go in anger. You tell him his fault. The way most of us tell each other our fault is you never do the right thing. You always leave the cap off of the toothpaste too. Never say never. And never say always, because you've got to fight instantly. You don't always do it. You do it 90% of the time. And the person who is going to, going to say that immediately, they've got an argument coming back. It's the, way, it's the way husbands and wives are. I know from experience, 47 years now, my wife and I have been together, and we have both done that to each other over a period of years. Say never or always. You don't do that, though. It's not wise. If he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more. This had not been done. Now, this is the formula that we've adopted that is in the Constitution and bylaws of the Intercontinental Church of God because we talk about in our covenants of living by every word of God as closely as we can. So, by extension, it's a part of our Constitution and bylaws that we should apply these things and we should use them in our lives. If he will not hear thee, then take with, uh, with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if you shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. Doesn't mean to stand up in the pulpit. Pardon me, Pastor. I got something I want to say. Here's the latest gossip. Old Henry over there wouldn't listen to me. We took George, Bill, and John. He wouldn't listen to them. All you folks need to hear what this dog did to me the other day. No, no, no. It is to 
the ministry of the church, obviously. To those in authority in the church, you take it to them, but only after you've exhausted what Christ said to do. People won't do it. And I'm talking about not one minister, but a couple of three over a period of years I've seen disobey flagrantly that scripture. To me, the instant they do that, they've disqualified themselves even as a minister, let alone as a lay member, because they're going directly, flagrantly, in violation of what Christ says is his way to solve problems and to settle things down between beloved brethren and the church. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. I would think that by the time two or three people, a group of four people now, maybe a group of six or eight if you include the wives, sitting around in a living room, and this process has been gone through, and I would think maybe some prayer ought to be involved. I think one method to really get the problem solved between the two individuals is just the first person who goes to the second person suggests, why don't we open the Bible and read Matthew 18, and after we read it, why don't we just get on our knees here by the couch and both of us pray out loud about it together. And then after that, we'll get up from prayer and let's talk about it further. I just can't imagine that people of goodwill in whom is God's Holy Spirit, could not solve their problems if they do it that way. I can't envision a scenario where someone wouldn't listen to you under those conditions. Now, I know that if somebody is just absolutely so violently angry that they will not do it. You know, I've had people say time and again, well, I'll get over it, but just give me time. What about that seven times in one day? Now, divide a day, and you're only talking about 12 hours into seven, you got a guy that's running over your pansy bed once every hour and a half. You don't have all that much time, but some people give the excuse, well, I'm the kind of a person, I fly off the handle, and it takes me a long time to cool down. Well, bully for you. Explain that to Jesus at the second coming of Christ. I'm sure that he will say, well, I know, we make all kinds of types from up there, and you're just one of those types that came out of the cookie, you know, the way we, we did the cookie... Uh, cup here, and that's the way you are. I don't think he will he will go along with that. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church, but if he neglect to hear the church, then let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, you know, when you go to someone and you try to explain a difficulty, and husbands and wives ought to know that that's difficult, even between husbands and wives, between beloved brethren in the church who love one another, who come to church together all the time, enjoy the potlucks, enjoy the fellowship, enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles, pray for one another when we have illnesses, we announce them out of the pulpit, and have a great deal of empathy for each other. When it gets down to problem solving and talking to one another about an attitude problem, it is very touchy. You're on a whole great big, you know, uh, floor full of ground glass and cornflake, making a lot of noise and hurting yourself in the process. And uh, it, it isn't always going to elicit from that person the exact response you want. So you've got to use a lot of tact. I'll tell you a little quick story about that. Years and years ago, there was this elderly black gentleman who worked in a hotel in New Orleans, and a young fellow checked in, and he was going to be doing the room service. And the older man was telling him, now, look, when you go up and you serve people in room service, you've got to use tact, and you've got to be courteous. And this younger man didn't know very much about those two words. He said, well, what, what is the difference? What, what do you mean tact and courtesy? He said, well, I'll tell you a story that happened just last week. I had to deliver a tray of food to room 219, and I went up there, and I heard something, and I thought, well, the door's unlocked. I knocked a couple of times. I went in, and I walked, and there was a lady in a bathtub. And I said, excuse me, sir. And I slowly backed out and left the table, left the tray on the table and closed the door. Now that, excuse me, that was courtesy. And the sir, that was tact. <laughs> because, obviously. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 10th and 11th chapters. There's a great deal in the letters to the Apostle Paul. I am so thankful that I have not come up against some of these things that Paul had to suffer, because I'll tell you, when you think about the kind of a person Paul was, a lot of you will place Paul barely beneath Jesus Christ so far as his spiritual condition is concerned, and probably rightly so, because God did use him to write 14 whole books of the Bible, 
and we're indebted to him for a tremendous amount of information about the way we ought to live our lives. And because of the foibles of humanity and Paul's wrestling with the problems of carnality and human beings and all the wonderful doctrinal things he gives us. In chapter 10 and verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Well, what do you know? There is tact. There is considering oneself lest you also be tempted who in presence am base among you. I acknowledge that I am the least of you. I am not much to look at. I don't have a powerful voice. I'm not much of a speaker. He said that about himself. But being absent, am bold toward you. I can write these words because we're hundreds of miles distant and I can be strong and powerful in what I say. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So he is talking about a few people in that rotten congregation. When you read both First and Second Corinthians, they accused him of being greedy of their tithes, and so he didn't take tithes from them, but had to actually use the tithes of other churches to go and to visit them in great arduous journeys. They were suspicious of every one of his motives. They had powerful spiritual gifts, and yet some of them were actually getting drunk at the Passover. You know all the problems that are in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and all the things that he had to deal with. But there were some there who imputed motives, who thought that the Apostle Paul was as carnal as they were, that he was only judging based upon human uh, concepts and human values, who think of us as though we walked according to the flesh instead of the spirit. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down reasonings, imaginations. In this case, reasonings is preferred. That's in the margin. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We're not there yet. Every thought almost like reaching out with a lariat and snaring a thought and grabbing it and hauling it down and bulldogging it to the ground and saying, now this thought, this errant thought, this attitude, this thing that flitted through my head is going to be made to conform to the way Jesus Christ would think about it. We don't do that. Having it a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? And most people would have to answer honestly, well, most of the time, most of the time. Hopefully not always. If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, and of course people who get judgmental are doing so because they are, they think, converted and spiritual. And the more converted, the more spiritual some people get, the more harsh and the more unyielding, the more critical, the more judgmental they become. I imagine if you are a... Well, I remember, let me give you an example of one church, and I won't identify the church, a couple of ladies, and they almost always came by on a Sabbath... And they had a bunch of books, and they had a magazine, and they wanted to give us literature. They would knock on the door. And I would identify myself on a rare occasion. Well, I'm Garner Ted Armstrong, and I'm in the ministry, and I preach every Sabbath, and we observe the Sabbath, and so on. They were outraged. But when you say you don't want their literature, I've actually seen them turn around, scrape their feet on the mat or the doorstep out there, take off their shoe even, bang it on the curb or something like that, because it says in the Bible, you know, don't even... Carry the dust, wipe the dust of your shoes off and go on to the next one. So they've got to be thinking, as does the person standing on a street corner with the magazine, the free magazine, droves of people are going by. Here's this spiritual magazine. Dirty heathen, dirty heathen, carnal unconverted, dirty heathen, going to hell, aren't you? Yeah. You know, I mean, people walking by, they've got to have the attitude that they are spiritually okay. They're spiritually all right. They are in they're with the group that knows the truth and you to go by and don't want to receive it, you know where you're going. I, we were in uh, Amish country uh, a little over a week ago, a couple of weeks ago. And it was really something because uh, Vernon Sturry and his wife Mary, most of you know and love them, and we'll see them at the feast, I imagine, depending where they go this year. Uh, he built a wonder, he is a construction, he's a, uh, a home builder. And he built a beautiful home and invited us over there. And we were in it and had a wonderful time on that next day. And uh, 
We had a Sunday brunch with them. And as we went out in the country, they live in Amish country, and Mary's mother is Amish, and Vern came from an Amish family. And there are these buggies going by, and I mean the little kids with kind of like a bonnet or a hat, and the ladies wearing a bonnet, and the man with a black hat on, and they're in a little buggy with a canopy over it and a horse. And they're driving through some of the most wonderful, luxuriant cropland you have ever seen. Now, they decided, whoever they are way back when, to sort of say, hold it. Right now, at this time of the stage of development, I suppose even beginning before the Industrial Revolution, this is the perfect time. This is the way we ought to live. And so they eschew all modern conveniences. Vern tells me that on an occasion, some of them, I think Mary's mother, uh, did give in to a telephone so that she can keep in touch and Mary can call her mother in case she had a problem or something like that. I think that's about the only concession she made. Most of those farm families up there have coal oil lanterns. They've got horses, all those burdened fields, gorgeous crops. I'll tell you what they've got, though. They're healthier. They live longer. They eat better food. They've got strong families. They've got obedient children. You know why? Because they shut the stupid world out. They don't have television. They don't even have radio. They just live in their own communities. They don't bother anybody. A lot of people look down on them and virtually hate them because they're different. But they are experiencing a lot of the rewards of life that other people miss out on because of their belief. But I should imagine, and I'm only imagining this, that as they go down the road, and they're all clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop at three and a half miles an hour, and a car goes by about 45, nice sporty little red roadster with a young girl with her ponytail flying in the air, dirty little heathen. I'm, it makes me wonder, you know, there's got to be a mental process by which they decide, I'm not going to join that bunch, I'm not going to drive a car, and I'm not going to let my kids learn to drive a car. There's got to be something going on in the mind on a daily basis, because they're, they're living with vapor trails going overhead, aircraft going by. They can see the big micro towers. They know the world is right there, all around them. Other farms right next door got three cars in the garage. You go by an Amish, and there's nothing but a barn, probably the door closed, and inside is an old wagon, some horses. So, if you've never been in, in Hutterite or Amish country, you may not know what I'm talking about, but we were over in Hershey, Pennsylvania one time, and it's the same over there. But this is up near Fort Wayne, Indiana, and some of the most beautiful farm country you've ever seen. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? Most of us have got to acknowledge to God, well, unfortunately, I wish I didn't, but much of the time I do. Well, we've got to get over that, and we've got to do it less and less until we don't do it at all. <laughs> that we never look on things according to the outward appearance. That we always wait, we suspend judgment, and if it's none of our business, we'll probably never know, but we just go and in the goodness of our heart, ready to forgive, spring-loaded to believe the best instead of the worst, well, probably not as bad as I think it is, everything will be fine in the long run. If any man trust to himself that he is Christ's, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. Now, if we're all together, if we're all Christ's, if the person with whom you got a problem is a Christian, and you are a Christian, why should there even be a problem? How can Christ be divided against Christ? I know people have really struggled with that because of the division of the church and because of the more than 250 little groups there are that will have virtually nothing to do with each other and all the various ecumenical attempts that have been made seemingly to no avail. And they wrestle with that. And frankly, the only way I can come to grips with it is Christ divided, is to say, no, Christ is not, but human beings who profess him are. Christ is not divided, and his people are not divided in their heart of hearts. And let me just elaborate on that a little further, because I went up to Wyoming one time for a little personal appearance campaign up there. Never had met a one of those people before. They'd seen me at a distance at the Feast of Tabernacles, but I'd never met a one of them. We went to dinner after the campaign, and I'll tell you, in 15 minutes, it was as if I had known every one of them all my life. We were the same people. We had the same values. We thought about the same things. We had the same approach when we talked about anything from, from food to politics. We had the same slant on things, the same approach to all kinds of life's problems. And it was like being in a family that I'd known all of my life. 
You would be surprised that you could talk about any number of these groups, and I could give you the name of 20 of them real quick like that probably. But if you would get to them without their leaders around in a social occasion, just run into them in the supermarket or out maybe in the cafeteria or maybe along the road they got a flat tire and you find out their way to home from the feast and they come from one of these other groups, you'd find out that you love them and that they love you and that you believe the same things, that you have the same slant on things, that you probably discuss things from the same vantage point, and that they are God's people. So the only way I can deal with it is that the church is a spiritual organism, not a political organization. And if men have made different parts of the spiritual organism at large into little political organizations, little cadres under a particular man with a particular name and a particular set of of beliefs, doctrines, or procedures, or whatever, then that does not do away with the fact that Christ cannot be divided. The spiritual organism is linked to Christ. Paul makes the point here, if you're Christ's and I am Christ's, then because my linkage goes directly to Christ and yours goes directly to Christ, we're linked together in Him. We may not always be linked together laterally in organizations on this earth but we are linked together with our elder brother and the true head of the spiritual organism, which is in Christ, who is in heaven above. So he's appealing. Look, think of me. At least give me the benefit. Will you folks out there in the church that are judging me, give me the benefit. Maybe I'm Christ's too. You're Christ's? Well, that's, that's wonderful. I hope so. But if you are, then think maybe I am too. Give me the benefit of the doubt. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority... And he didn't really. I should boast maybe some more, he said, which the Lord has given us for edification and not for your destruction, only to build up and to help. I should not be ashamed. So again, tact. Even if I should come on a little stronger, I wouldn't be ashamed if I did. That I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, oh yeah, the word had come back to him are weighty and powerful, meaning that first letter to the Corinthian church. But his bodily presence is weak. Well, it probably was. Apparently, he wasn't much to look at. Apparently, he wasn't very powerful. Apparently, he wasn't a very good-looking man. Apparently, he had an eye problem. And his speech, contemptible. Apparently, he sort of maybe heard his word. Maybe he talked like that. I don't know. I have no idea what the speech problem was. But he confesses time and again that Paul wasn't a good speaker. Now, some of you that are not good speakers, and you know it, what about his letters? Boy, could he write a letter. So he served God when? Why, for almost 2,000 years now. And for the rest of all eternity, Paul will still be serving God. I'm using what he wrote to a local church with whom he had a lot of problems right now, today, for your benefit and for probably 2,000 other people's benefit who will hear the tape about what the Apostle Paul wrote. And yes, his letters are powerful. His letters are wonderful. His letters are absolutely spirit-inspired, and God Almighty gave him what he should write. He could write more eloquently because his speech, though it was halting and slow, was being taken down by Aristarchus or Segundus or Gaius or Timothy or some of the others who were actually like scribes and who wrote what he said. When he had to identify himself on the one occasion where the Galatians were being afflicted by false teachers, remember he said, don't be deceived by anyone, by spirit, or a letter as from us. And when he concluded the letter, he said, you see how I've written with large letters, meaning large forms or figures, so uh, in my own hand, so that they would know it was authentic. It says to me that he was almost blind, that he wrote in very large characters because he was almost blind. It may have been cataracts. Now today they have procedures by laser and surgery where they can remove them, but then it may have been something of that nature. Perhaps his eyes were almost like a milky orb. He could barely see out of them. It was probably repugnant for people to look at. He called it a messenger of Satan, and he asked God three times to take it away, and God didn't answer. So Paul realized the answer is no. And that affliction he lived with. So he's admitting. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such an one, someone who harbors that attitude, think this, that 
such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, including the young men with him, not just I, but we, interesting, such will we be also in deed when we are present. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. And isn't that the way we do it? Isn't that the way it was all the way through school? You know, when I got back, when I joined the Navy, for example, I thought it was all going to be completely bereft of cliques. It wasn't. There were cliques, different little groups, different guys that hung together. When I came into the church and was finally baptized, became a member of the church, I thought, I'm out of it. No more cliques. What a, what a surprise. Of course there are cliques, different groups. There are the pariahs, the untouchables, the people you have nothing to do with. There are the elite core that you say, oh, I'd like to be one of them. There's the big, faceless, kind of anonymous middle class, whatever. It was that way in school. When I went off to school in the first grade, I ran into that. And in high school, it was really extreme. If you were a letter man on the football squad, and you had a letter on your jacket, and you carried a big old paddle in those days for people that did things in the hallway that they shouldn't like stripping books out of some kid's arm, and they caught him at it. They were called the Axemen. That was our team up in Eugene, Oregon, where we were a timberland town of about 40 lumber mills, and they had a big old wooden paddle. I know that's long since legislated out of the schools, but they would make a guy bend over and grab his ankles and go gabang with that big old thick board paddle and paddle your rear end right there in the hallway. Now, they'd have a revolution on their hands if they tried that again today. But I'll tell you, it did work. But the trouble was it also inspired certain cliques. There were the cheerleaders, and there were the ones that were way below that, and there were the kids that no one had anything to do with it from the wrong side of the tracks and probably had holes in their socks and shoes. I was one of those part of the time. I used to put cardboard inside my shoes, and it did, I'd take an extra spare pair because it rained a lot of time in Oregon. It didn't last long. It looked like oatmeal after a few steps on a wet sidewalk because I had holes in my shoes, and we couldn't afford to buy any others. He said, We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That's the stuff of cliques of people grouping themselves and looking down disdainfully at other people, looking up to a different group. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us, a measure reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure. We don't overreach. We don't assume to have authority that we don't have, as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ not boasting of things without or beyond our measure, that is, of other men's labors, not posturing, pretending that we're more than we really are, pretending that we've done more work than we have, pretending we are over areas where we have no claim, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged to you or magnified in you, as the margin says, magnified in you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line. Why do you suppose he brings that up? Well, you've got to go back to 1 Corinthians, the first three chapters. You're saying, I'm a Peter, I'm a Paul, I'm a Apollos, or I'm of Christ. And remember, there was divisiveness here, there were cliques here, there was party spirit here, and he's dealing with that in both of these letters to that church. He that glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Have you ever known a braggart that just continually bragged on himself? I told you how wonderful he was. My dad used to quote, I don't remember that old uh, poem about how I love myself. I put my arms around myself and give myself a squeeze and, and so on. And uh, he could quote the whole thing, and I can't. But uh, there were people like that. I just finished reading a book I'm going to pass on to E.B. because he was there in the Battle of the Bulge. And this is a very thick book, thoroughly documented with a complete appendix from both sides after all these many, many years. Fairly brand new book. And it's taken from the notes and from the actual official reports, from diaries, from people even wrote on toilet paper in prison camps. And all of it compiled together about the Battle of the Bulge, the Battle of the Bulge. A lot of you that aren't familiar with that 
will not remember about the salient through the Ardennes, uh, the place where the Allies were very thinly stretched, the place where they least expected it, yet it was the very place where Hitler had come down through Belgium and uh, through the Ardennes uh, and around the Maginot Line and attacked France in the early part of World War II. Well, they came again, and it looked like it was going to reverse the, the course of the whole war. And it did actually cause the war to drag on for many months longer than it might have if that hadn't happened. They did it right in the dead of winter, in snowstorms, in icy conditions, along what was called the Schnee Eiffel, in places like Hoffelez, and of course, you remember Bastogne and the battling blah, blah, of Bastogne, as they were called. And uh, I can remember to this day because I heard about it at the time and grew up on some of that geography and some of the world history about what McAuliffe said to the Germans when they demanded to surrender. And he said, nuts. Well, if you saw the movie, The Battle of the Bulge, they didn't know what the world that meant. Does that mean he surrenders or does it mean he doesn't surrender? It was really funny. But uh, it's very, very interesting there. And all that occurred. And you see human nature in the raw. In its absolute worst, and in some cases, its very best. Sometimes where an enemy would actually help another enemy, the two limping along together. Other cases where they would literally massacre helpless prisoners, tie their hands behind them with wire, and machine gun them down mercilessly. Uh, the most brutal things, and yet it absolutely happened, every bit of it documented, about the Battle of the Bulge. So, it's just something I would pass on to you. I'm going to try to give that to E.B., and I think that he will probably find his own unit in there sooner or later. Chapter 11, would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly. Isn't this interesting? What interesting language. He's using psychology. Okay, you think I'm nuts, so let me just be a little more idiotic with you here for a minute and just listen to the old fool ramble, if you will. Bear with me a little bit in my folly. Indeed, bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, using metaphor, of course. But I fear, lest by any means that the serpent, as he beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. How simple is it to maintain the right attitude? It's simple to believe, difficult to do, but not with the power of God's Holy Spirit. But that's not a heavy doctrine. You don't need to know anything all about histospus. You don't need to know anything at all about Antiochus Epiphanes or Epimenes, as they called him, Antiochus the Idiotic. You need to know nothing about the various old empires that have passed, about history, about Greek or Latin or Aramaic or any other language. But this you need to know, judge not, that you be not judged. Love is at all times an outgoing concern for the brother. It is defined in 1 Corinthians 13. It is not easily in any way provoked, but always endures all things, hopes all things, thinks the best of all things. He is fearing his actual concern is for them, and at no time can you accuse the Apostle Paul of worrying about his image. He continually abases himself before them, tells them what adult he feels he really is. He even plays games. Well, all right, let's pretend I'm an idiot. You think I'm a fool, so let me be a fool a little while here. Let's just be foolish. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus, well, then it was somebody coming to them and preaching and somebody who was doing what? Well, like a wolf among sheep, this is Paul's church. It's God's church, but Paul raised it up. Paul's converts, not these other guys' converts, Paul's converts. Somebody else is preaching to them now and telling them different ideas. If he that comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him, or with me, as it, uh, the margin says, because the word him is supplied and really isn't accurate. For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. Now, wait a minute, he's not bragging, but though I be rude in speech, so he's not bragging, he wasn't a whip behind the very chiefest, and that's interesting, never forget that, plural. There wasn't a chief apostle, there were the very chiefest apostles, Peter, James, and John, and some of the others. And he wasn't a whip behind them, he says. So he wasn't going to take that lying down and just say, well, he was Peter's messenger boy. But though I be rude in speech, now you know, I've listened to men who are rude in speech, meaning pretty rough around the edges not good speakers, but good of heart and good of intent and good to point to the scriptures and to read through them. You don't always have to have some eloquent speaker 
that is very, very polished. I remember one time a young man, I won't identify him, come to, to Ambassador College, coming to the college, and I was a speech teacher for many years. I taught freshmen, I taught intermediate, and I taught advanced in the graduate school level. And this young man stood up and gave one of the most eloquent, fluid, wonderful speeches you'd ever heard. Well, he was actually a minister from one of the Protestant churches. You know what I told him after it was all over? I said to him, it was just too good. It was too smooth. It was too polished. And you were speaking at us. It was a performance. We all admired everything from your voice, which is mellifluous, to your very intellectual approach to everything, to the wonderful vocabulary, to your gestures, which matched everything. But it came off as a performance. You didn't talk directly to our hearts. And I'm afraid I was a little bit merciless with him because I was a young teacher at that time. And, uh, but he was a good speaker, and we taught a lot of very good speakers. This young fellow came to Ambassador College already having brought a lot of sermons before a Sunday Protestant church. And when people use that, what I call a kind of a churchianity, Protestant kind of smarmy language, and always refer to the Lord and speak in that way, and use a certain tone of voice, and they're accustomed to doing this, I have a problem with that. I, I'd rather have people just talk just like they would if they're chatting to you over in New York State. Though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached to you the gospel of God freely, I robbed other churches. Now, this again is metaphor. It didn't mean he stuck a gun, well, he didn't have a gun, but a knife in their ribs and said, give me your money. But what he did is to take the monies that they had given and which should have been to their benefit, and instead he had to use them in his travels and his exertions on the part of the Corinthian church, taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, they didn't care. He was actually going without meals, clothing, and a decent place to stay oftentimes when he's working among these people. I was chargeable to no man. I've known ministers that stood up in the pulpit and told the congregation about their woes, their old car doesn't work, they need a new pair of shoes, need an overcoat for the winter. And actually there were people that did that years ago, one of whom actually was eventually so angry because we tried to get him to stop that he just left and went off with his own little group and started his own little church because we didn't think it was kosher. It was, wasn't something we thought a minister ought to do based upon this and a lot of other scriptures and just plain old common sense and decency for a minister to stand up there and poor mouth himself and get somebody to come up and here, here, take this $100 bill that he just shouldn't have been doing that. Well, he was bought a car by the membership. Now, what does that do to him? Compromises him beyond all... You, know, you, you can't believe... He is same thing as putting himself in handcuffs to that congregation and certainly to that person. He could never preach a corrective sermon about that person's attitude again if he accepts that money from him, can he? And so he ought to know the ethics of it. Well, he said, when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I've kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. That's a position of strength. He's able to write this letter to them with no compromises, no blackmail here. They got nothing on this man. They haven't got anything they can dig up to accuse him of. They can get as mad as they want to. They can gnaw their kneecap. But they can't do the Apostle Paul any difficulty because he had nothing that they could say against him. He hadn't taken anything from them, even though he was allowed to. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knows. But what I do, that will I do, that I might cut off occasion from them which desire occasion. They're looking for a fight. That wherein they glory and boast and brag, may be, be found even as we are. For such are false apostles. He doesn't name them. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, it's no big deal, because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I say again, let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. 
That which I speak, I speak, if not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many will glory after the flesh, well, I'll glory also. For you suffer fools gladly, seeing that you yourselves are wise. And the contrast is so obvious. If you're so wise, supercilious, haughty, look down your nose disdainfully at other people. What has this blabberer got to say? Let's listen to what this fool has to gibber about today. I uh, wonder what this idiot has got to get off his chest today. Seeing you suffer fools gladly, that you're wise. If you suffer, if a man bring you into bondage, well, sure you do. If a man devour you, if a man take of you, steals from you, rips you off, if a man exalt himself above you, if a man smite you on the face, wow, that's pretty tough. I'll tell you, people can act sometimes as if they have lost it all over a perceived little bit of mistreatment. And he is just going the whole route here. Now we're talking all the way to what Christ said. Some people can't handle. If someone smites you on the face, turn to him the other cheek also. A lot of people cannot handle that. They say, well, am I supposed to do that? But I have to write, I wrote one letter recently. It's talking in a spiritual, it's talking in a church environment. It's not talking about some guy walks up to you in the street and whacks you in the face that you don't have a, a chance to at least throw up your arm and, and prevent it or... or, or you know, run or do something to defend yourself. A guy wondered, am I supposed to just stand there? Whack. Here, go ahead, hit me again. Uh, or is it okay to run or at least throw up your hand and say, what are you doing? And I had to write and explain that to somebody. And sometimes people don't understand. I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak, howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Now he gets into these comparisons. I speak foolishly. It's ridiculous, he is saying to them, that I should be driven to the extent that I've got to make carnal comparisons with you people. I shouldn't have to do this. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Big deal. So we're all Hebrews. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I'm speaking foolishly here. He's saying, I shouldn't even be having to do this, say this to you people. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft, that is in fear of deaths, and having deaths occur around him when he was shipwrecked, having other people beaten to death. Paul was dragged out and left on a dung heap, left on the city garbage pile, because they couldn't even find a pulse on one occasion. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, that's what I was talking to, uh, when he was dragged out and, and uh, they rescued him later. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. We only read of the first, you know, the only occasion we read about is the island of Malta, but it happened three times. A night and a day, he's out there paddling around in the water, not knowing where the sharks are, clinging to some flotsam from a boat that has been wrecked, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. I have never been in that situation. Even in the Navy, I was very greatly blessed. There were guys over in Korea that were soaking the, blood, the snow with their blood. Uh, I remember a beloved brother. I don't know if he's even still alive or not. Howard Clark, that was... Uh, uh, got some mortar rounds that, that blew him up, and uh, he was crippled in his legs. I remember dear old Benjamin Ray that had a mortar blast. He was a medic, and it took out a part of his skull. They actually had to put a plate, and he had blinding migraine headaches all the rest of his life. It eventually killed him. He died of a, of a ruptured uh, blood vessel in his brain because a reporter came in there and upset him so much uh, when he was the dean of the faculty over in Brickett Wood. I was there when Ben Ray died. I was right there when that attack occurred and uh, when he was writhing in agony. So other people, here I was, the analogy was I'm looking at here and thinking about was that here I'm on an aircraft carrier, I'm offshore, our aircraft are going back and forth and bombing and strafing and all that and offering close air support to the GIs on the ground, but I'm in a warm bunk every night. 
and you feel a little bit guilty about it almost. I'm a part of ship's company on an aircraft carrier, and I got three warm meals and a nice bunk, and I hear the catapult right over my head. I smacked my thumb. My big war injury was I was moving a 500-pound bomb between my legs, and the guy ahead of me shoved one against my thumb and, and smacked it. That's a terrible war injury. I didn't even ask for a purple heart. It wouldn't have been any way. But... I, I felt guilty about it, often did. It bothered me for years that I wasn't up there in the front lines with some of those guys. A lot of them were there. Gerald Waterhouse was on a Bonham Richard. I could see the Bonham Richard right out of the porthole in the op shop. I didn't know him then. Carlton Smith was in a tank over there on the ground somewhere in Korea. I didn't know that, but he became a minister. He came to Ambassador College and became a minister later on. I felt a little bit guilty about it. I have never had to go through this since I've been in God's work. I've never been shipwrecked, never been in a plane wreck. My brother was killed in an automobile wreck, and uh, we've had things like that happen. But uh, nevertheless, in watchings often, hunger and thirst, no. Fastings often, not often, not often enough. In cold and nakedness, never. Cold, yeah, well, I get a little cold, so I turn the heat up. But uh, this man just went through a kind of a hell on earth for the sake of God's work and for the sake of these brethren. And he's got a right to tell them what his life was like. Beside those things that are without, which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak? Who's got a bone to pick? Who's got a rag to chew? Who's got a big complaint to make? Who's got their trembled chin all down on their chest, feeling, woe is me, I'm Mr. Pitiable here. And I am not weak. Who is offended, gets their feelings hurt, and I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knows that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, kept the city of Damascenes with a garrison desirous to apprehend me. Now he has the whole authorities looking for him to kill him, and through a window in a basket I was let down by the wall and escaped his hands. Now, just go a little later here. Just bear with me just a few more minutes here. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body I can't tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Holy Spirit inspired these words. He either had an in-the-body experience or he had an out-of-the-body experience. Now, remember that the new creature in Christ is a spirit being that is begotten by the Holy Spirit of the Father, together with your human spirit, creating what God's Word says is a new creature in Christ. That creature in Christ is absolutely impervious to any human means of destruction. Fear not man who after he has killed the body cannot kill what the Bible says is the soul or the life. And that life principle is a spiritual life principle which is the new creature in Christ. You are not given any other options. The Holy Spirit says either it was bodily or it was out of the body, but he was still intelligent, and the new creature in Christ was seeing and hearing these things. One or the other, there isn't any third option. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. There's the heaven where the birds fly and the clouds form. There's the heaven of the universe, so to speak, and there's the heaven of God's throne. Space is one of the heavens. The heaven, commonly spoken of, caught up into the heavens, is the heaven where the clouds form, the earth's atmosphere. But this is the third heaven, the heaven where God's throne is. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. One or the other. But it did happen. And so either in the spirit, as a spiritual being taken out of his body while his body was in a trance, or bodily... How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory. Yet of myself I will not glory but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. I will say the truth, but now I forbear. I'll quit this line of reasoning. I'll stop now, lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be or that which he hears of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And then he talks about how he prayed and that God would, would take it away from him, and it never did. If you'll turn to Galatians 5.22, we'll complete with that. 
I think we know some of these scriptures by heart, but sometimes we tend to forget. I think that's why the Sabbath comes along every seven days instead of every nine or sixteen. In Galatians 5 and verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Each one of those deserves a very long, lengthy sermon to define what kind of love. Not the love of a boy toward a puppy or a father toward a son or mother toward a daughter, but the spiritual love that comes from God. Joy, peace, long-suffering. I'll tell you, some people are willing to suffer and put up with an indignity, some kind of a, a problem that bothers them for probably close to five seconds or so, but not much longer than that. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is just easy to ascertain. It's like I used to take a dipstick in an old, old 1930 Model A Ford and you simply took the stick and you put it down in the gas tank and you could tell what the level of gas was. Some of the old automobiles and trucks didn't even have a gauge to tell you how much was in the tank. And so the spiritual dipstick is right here for us in Galatians 5.22. All you've got to do is in every human situation, if you're upset, you're disturbed, you've got a problem, the spiritual dipstick says love, joy, peace, and all these other qualities, long-suffering, am I filled with love, is this a joyous occasion, am I at peace with it, am I willing to endure it for a long time, Is it going? am I going to be gentle with the other person, am I good, will I have the faith to know it will turn out alright, will I be meek and humble, will I be temperate? Against such, there is no law. Living close to Christ is extremely difficult, but it is very simple as a concept. It just says something like this. Be nice. Be good. Be happy. Be decent. Be kind. Be gentle. Always think the best. Don't judge. Don't impute motives. Don't leap to conclusions. Don't just paint with a broad brush everything evil on someone because of some little slight that you think they are guilty of. Reminds me of the fish, the trophy that Mr. Freeman gave me a few weeks ago. I go by it every now and then, and that dumb fish just starts singing and flipping his tail. And he says, the little song I wrote, and uh, hope you can sing it like word for word, note for note. And then he turns his face, opens it up, says, be happy. Don't worry. He says, don't worry, be happy now. That fish does that to me every day. Every time I walk by and I punch that button and that fish says, don't worry, be happy. So I'll just say what Mr. Freeman's fish says, don't worry, be happy. <laughs>